Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you brought them with you today, would you take them out and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark into chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. We're continuing our study through the passages in which Jesus makes the statement, follow me. And last week we studied uh, from Mark chapter 10. We met a man traditionally known as the rich young ruler who came and who came running to Jesus and he, he fell down in front of Jesus and asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus told the man if he truly wanted eternal life, he only lacked one thing. He needed to go and sell everything that he possessed, take the proceeds that he got from selling all of that, give it to the poor and the needy, and then he needed to leave all of that and come and follow him. In other words, Jesus told the rich young ruler that he needed to really divest himself of everything that he had previously trusted in and from which he had derived his identity. And then he needed to invest into the kingdom of God, which would then be demonstrated by giving all of that to the poor and then by leaving it all to follow Jesus and become his disciple. And, and faced with that demand, what we noted last week in our study was that the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus sad. In fact, the overwhelming consensus of all the commentaries on this passage lead us to understand that, that this is probably the only example of any person who ever encountered Jesus in the Gospels and walked away from him worse off than the way he came. And the reason that the man was so sorrowful and discouraged was because, as Mark states, he had great or many possessions. In other words, he was unwilling to part with the wealth and with the prosperity that he had in order to follow Jesus. Simply put, the cost was just simply too high. Consequently, what we recognize is that Jesus had identified what truly mattered most to this man, and it was his possessions. So in a sermon on this passage, one preacher put it this way. He says, one of the great messages of the story of the rich young ruler is simply this. Christ separates us from the world, or the world separates us from Christ. And that's it. He says, either, either we love Christ so much that the world does not have a hold on our hearts, or we love the world so much that Christ does not have a hold on our hearts, and we lose hold of him. The story of the rich young ruler teaches us that lesson. It's a lesson that leads us to where we find ourselves focusing our attention this morning. You see, over the past few weeks, we've really dive deeply into what we are trying to understand. What are the demands of following Jesus? What are those demands based upon Jesus' own words? We could even summarize what we've learned in the same words that that preacher used. We could just simply use it and say this way by saying that following Jesus demands that we separate ourselves from the world. But as we consider those demands, we might also wonder, are there not rewards that we might expect for following Jesus? I mean, should we not suppose that in denying ourselves and in, in taking up our crosses and in following Jesus, are there not some benefits that we ought to experience as a result of that? Well, as the, 
As the rich young ruler sadly walked away and disappeared from the view of the disciples and from Jesus, it was those same questions that were on the disciples' minds. And in the subsequent scene here in Mark 10, Jesus actually takes the opportunity to instruct his disciples about this very subject. Is is there to be expected rewards for following Jesus? So pick up with me there in verse 23 of Mark chapter 10. I'm going, to read, I'm going to read down through verse 31. Follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures. Then Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. We're grateful for the the health that we have to be able to assemble ourselves together. Lord, not only to sing songs of praise, to hear words that exalt you as our Savior, but then also, and more importantly, even here right now, to hear from you directly, from your word that you authored. We sit here, Lord, before you with our Bibles open, expecting to hear a word from you as you speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth that you would have for us. That you would continue to change us, that you would continue to call us to yourself, and that you would find in us obedient, faithful followers. Lord, I pray that that would happen and that you would would do a great work in our lives, even, even today. We pray for your glory and our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the setting for this passage, quite frankly, is a sad one. Not only have we seen the rich young ruler walk away from Jesus sad, but we get a distinct impression that the disciples are, well, they're sad too. Um, After all, from their perspective, the rich young ruler would have had it all, right? He had everything that they didn't have. Uh, to the best of our knowledge, probably Matthew would have been the one who would have had the, probably the most wherewithal among all of the disciples. The rest of them were common blue-collar guys, didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of possessions, didn't have a lot of power. But this rich young ruler, he had all of that. He had power, he had 
prestige. He had he had possessions and he had wealth. And, and, and he was the kind of person that most organizations and, and quite frankly, even most churches would just be tripping all over themselves in order to welcome him into their, into their uh, uh, spirit and into their family in order to put him in positions of leadership. The disciples likely saw this man's departure as a missed opportunity. Jesus, however, saw it as a perfect opportunity to teach his disciples a lesson. On your outline in your bulletin today, I've, I've given you what I hope will be a helpful outline that just kind of help you walk through this passage. And I've alliterated a little bit, even though I, I always repent every time I do a, a sermon alliteration, then I go back to it and repent of it. But then Dave tells me it's okay, so I do it again. <laughs> but I've given you three points that will be slightly alliterated today and, and, and some hooks just really for us to hang our thoughts on. The first one is this, Jesus gives a warning about riches. There's a warning about riches. Notice what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to make no mistake about this. This was a bombshell statement from the mouth of Jesus. And I want you to notice just how totally shocked his disciples were. Mark says they were astonished. Why? Well, the common belief in that day is very similar to the one that's still common and alive and well today, and that is that wealth and prosperity are, are sure signs of God's blessings. I mean, after all, the, the Bible does say in Proverbs 10, verse 22, that the blessing of the Lord makes one rich. Proverbs 8, verse 20 and 21, the Lord says, I walk in the way of righteousness in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. We also have the examples in the Old Testament of men like, like Abraham and Job and, and David and Solomon, among others, whose lives point to the fact that God truly does pour his blessings out upon his people in, in material ways. But at the same time, we must also remember that the scriptures warn us against the fact that wealth and riches, well, they're not the end all to be all of every pursuit of our lives. They're not the things that should dominate our thoughts and dominate our desires. In fact, the Bible warns against the dangers of wealth and riches. Psalm 62 verse 10, if riches increase, do not set your hearts on them. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. You see, what the scriptures teach us and what, what Jesus says explicitly here to his disciples is that wealth and riches, they have the real ability to, to become a real and present danger to a person's spiritual health. Riches have the distinct ability to trip a person up and to ensnare their owners into a trap. William Lane, in his commentary on this passage, describes just how dangerous riches and, and wealth can actually be. He writes, The peculiar danger confronting the rich lies in the false sense of security which wealth creates and in the temptation to trust in material resources and personal power rather than a wholehearted reliance upon God. Randy Alcorn, he has written this. He says, material wealth can begin as God's blessing 
But when we treat it as a substitute for God, it becomes a curse. In other words, the danger of material riches is that they can become your main focus and your source of hope rather than God, thereby making you spiritually poor. Job recognized this. Job was a very, very rich man. But he said this in Job 31, verses 24 through 28. He says, if I have made gold my hope or rejoiced because my wealth was great, this would be an iniquity deserving of judgment for I would have denied God who is above. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament also warns against Wealth and riches and and the impact that they can make upon a person's life. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 he says, Commanding those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So you see the Bible is really replete with with warnings concerning the danger that, that wealth and riches Pose and the trap that is laid by them. And consequently, when the focus of our lives move toward honoring God, move from honoring God to trusting in, in, in wealth and in, in, in the security that riches and possessions bring us, well, well, then we will have been trapped. We would have found ourselves ensnared in the very thing that the Bible warns us against. We will have placed our hope and our confidence in the wrong thing And we would have put our trust in something other than God. So Jesus warns his disciples right up front about the dangers of riches. And that warning allows us to conclude that rewards, the rewards of following Jesus, you know what they're not? They're not riches of this world. If he's warning against it and the Bible says that much against it, we can determine that the the rewards of following Jesus won't come that direction. Contrary to the false teaching of the health and wealth preachers of our time, becoming a Christian and following Jesus does not guarantee you physical health or financial prosperity. There are many passages in the scriptures that refute that type of teaching, but even if this were the only one, what Jesus says here would certainly negate such heresy. While God may bless you, and brothers and sisters, there is not a single one of us in this room, regardless of our financial state, who could not say that by comparison to the rest of the world, that our living conditions, particularly when compared to all of humanity throughout the the centuries of time, that we have not experienced the blessings of God in the way that we have, that we live with conveniences and that we live with with enjoyments of our lives that are far richer than 99.9% of the rest of the world. And yet, we must not confuse the temporary riches which we have access to with being the rewards of following Jesus. In fact, as Jesus says, if we are not extremely careful, the riches of this world may, in fact, prove to be the very obstacles that will impede our progress of following Jesus. So Jesus states his warning in verse 23. He repeats it essentially again in verse 24, using almost the exact same words. 
And then, to really hammer the point home, Jesus provides a word picture for showing us just how hard it is. When he says in verse 25, it would be easier for, the, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the impossibility of what Jesus says here is so obvious that I believe even a small child would be able to understand it without a whole lot of explanation. A camel was the largest land animal that lived in that part of the world during the time in which Jesus said this. And so he's saying that the largest land animal that any of us can see out there, which would be a camel, it would be easier for that camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than it would be for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, such a thought is absolutely ridiculous for Jesus to think that, that a big animal like that, that somebody in some way could push an animal like that through the eye of a needle. Now, throughout the centuries, people have tried to soften what Jesus has said, saying that there was a certain gate that was called the needle's eye gate that was so small that a camel could get through it, but you'd have to unload the camel of everything that it had on its back, and then the camel would have to get down on its knees and crawl its way through. The only problem with that is, there's, in the time of Jesus, there was never such a, a gate there. Others have said, well, the, the word used for camel here, actually in Aramaic, is very similar to a word that was also used for rope. So really, they got it wrong, and Jesus was actually saying, you can't get a rope through the eye of a needle. I think the better solution is to allow Jesus' words to stand as they are and to allow his words to penetrate our thinking exactly the way he intended for it to. You see, the point that Jesus is making is that entering the kingdom of God while trusting in and grasping on to anything or anyone other than Jesus is a flat-out impossibility. In fact, that is exactly how the disciples understood what Jesus said. Notice their response and their question in verse 26. Mark says that they were exceedingly astonished. They were astonished earlier. Now they are exceedingly astonished by what Jesus says. And then they ask in their bewilderment, then who can be saved? It is that question regarding salvation that launches Jesus into the next lesson that he teaches his disciples and he teaches us. He moves from the issue of riches to the issue of redemption. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said to them in verse 27, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Therefore, note the next hook there on your outline. The next thing that Jesus gives them is a word about redemption. A word about redemption. The disciples recognized that if, if the rich young ruler, who was a man by his own admission, who had kept all of the commandments his whole life, he was a man who by all accounts had been blessed by God with material possessions and was living a blessed life. Well, if he couldn't be saved, then who could? Jesus answers them this way, no one. With man, it's impossible. You see how Jesus, what he's doing here? He's stripping away all of our confidence in anything else but him. He's cutting through all of the stuff that we put our hope and our confidence in, that this rich young ruler had put all of his hope and confidence in. Jesus strips 
every bit of that away. And here's what I want you to know. There's not a, there's not a single man, woman, boy, or girl who could ever attempt to enter the kingdom and stand before God on the basis of their own achievement or their own merit. Furthermore, the kingdom of God is so far above and so removed from from the earthly kingdoms that we uh, understand that, that the earthly kingdoms in which we put so much stock that no amount of earthly wealth or riches will be able to swing the favor of God in our direction. The opposite's also true, though. Look, you can't give enough of your wealth away. You can't find enough other things out there with what God has given to you to earn God's favor and entrance into the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is that humanly speaking and from the human perspective, it's impossible to be saved. But it's not impossible with God. In fact, Jesus says with God, all things are possible. Jesus doesn't necessarily go into a great elaboration on on how redemption is possible with God. But here is what is evident from and what we learn from this passage You see, if you can't earn heaven by wealth or by good works, which the rich young ruler was hoping to do, then the only way anyone could ever be saved is if God operates entirely apart from us and for his own good pleasure. In other words, our only hope is if God is both gracious and merciful to us. In fact, I believe the the proper understanding of God's grace and mercy is is what has the ability to break the power of material wealth's hold upon our lives. And not just material wealth, but anything else that has a hold on our lives. If we truly begin to understand God's grace and mercy, I think it is then that that those powerful things that are controlling us lose their control. Simply put, grace, grace is what God gives us that we do not deserve. So redemption and and salvation and and eternal life, all of that is available to us because of grace. It is a gift. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. It is the most precious and valuable gift ever offered. But it is only available to those who realize that they need it and to those who come empty-handed, helpless, and open to receive it. It's a gift. Mercy, on the other hand, is what God withholds from us that we do deserve. You see, you and I are sinners. And as such, we all deserve God's punishment. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 verse 5, Because of our hard and impenitent hearts, we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The scriptures also tell us that the wages of our sin is death. Do you get that? You can't earn eternal life, but you know what you can earn? Eternal death. Because you are a sinner, you have have wages that are coming to you. But those wages end up being eternal death. We can't earn eternal life, but we can and do, and all of us do, earn the wage of eternal death. But in his mercy, in his mercy, God doesn't give us what we've earned. 
He withholds from us his wrath. Instead, he poured out the full wrath of his his vile wrath against sin upon his son Jesus when Jesus was stretched out on a cross. All of God's wrath was poured out upon him. Christ suffered in our place and bore upon himself our punishment so that we might be set free from the penalty of our sin. So listen, when you begin to consider God's grace and his mercy, when you consider that he offers you what you could never buy or earn or merit, when he offers you eternal life, and when you also consider that he withholds from you that which you deserve and have earned, which is eternal death in a place called hell, then only then will you begin to understand that the only way that you can ever be saved is by God's grace and mercy working effectively in your life. Your redemption demands and depends upon God's act of kindness toward you. And it necessitates that you turn loose of all else, placing your complete faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And that is exactly what the rich young ruler would not do. And so he sorrowfully fades from view. And in the process, Jesus taught his disciples two absolutely valuable lessons. Strip away all the hope and all the confidence that a person could place In anything or anyone other than Christ, he has issued a warning about riches and he has given us a word about redemption. And the whole scene likely could have just ended right there. Except for a follow-up statement that Peter makes. Notice again what Peter says in verse 28. He says, see, we have left all and followed you. And in the parallel account to this over in Matthew's gospel... We read that in light of that statement, see, we've left all to follow you. Peter also asks a question, therefore, what shall we have? We've left all to follow you. Therefore, what shall we have? Peter reminds Jesus that he and the other disciples had turned loose of all their earthly possessions. They'd given up money and homes and families and businesses and et cetera and all, all of that to follow Jesus. And consequently, what Peter is really asking is what's in it for us? What's our reward? In fact, Peter's statement leads us to the final hook of this passage. The third point on your outline is this. What about rewards? What about rewards? We might rephrase Peter's question this way. Lord, are there kingdom rewards for faithful disciples? When you call on us to leave and to follow you, may we expect to be rewarded for that? I mean, will our discipleship lead to some kind of compensation? Some have really castigated Peter. Proposing this question to Jesus. Uh, one even I read said this. He'd, he'd spent too much time listening to the radio station WFIIM. What's in it for me? But notice that Jesus does not respond to Peter with a rebuke. And I think that's important to note. You see, I believe that, that inherent... In the call to come and follow Jesus is a call to abandon this world and the hold that it has upon you. But I also believe that it's a call that tells you that what you gain by following Christ is far greater 
than anything you could ever lose or give up for his sake. Yes, the investment is high. Jesus never denies that. But the dividends are far greater than you can imagine, which is exactly what Jesus tells Peter next. In fact, listen to Jesus' words once more. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. And if we stop right there in verse 29, we see that's the investment. We might even look at it in another way. For those of you who, are, who, who deal with these kind of things, we, that's the short-term loss that Jesus talks about. There's some of that that's there. But then verse 30 tells us the dividends, the long-term gain. He says, nobody who, who loses all those stuff, verse 29, shall, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. Now, what I want you to know is that the list that Jesus gives here is not an exhaustive List, it's intended to be all-encompassing, though. It doesn't list everything that could be lost, but it does list enough things out there so that you recognize everything kind of falls underneath the umbrella with which he presents things. He mentions that in following him, there are those who give up material possessions, houses and lands. But he also mentions that there are those who sacrifice relationships. And listen, not just any kind of relationships. The kind of relationships that are the most dear and the most intimate. The kind of relationships that sort of give you your identity in life. Um, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, wife, children. You see, Jesus is not denying that following him is not costly. In fact, he has stated so many times that to follow me will cost you everything. The high cost of discipleship is actually the focus of this entire section here in Mark's gospel. But as we've seen over the past few weeks, it is a major emphasis in Jesus' teaching throughout the gospels. But notice that Jesus says that no one who gives up these things or these relationships, none of them are going to be left empty handed. In fact, he says that such ones will receive a hundredfold more in return. In other words, he tells Peter and the other disciples, you cannot leave all of these things. You can't turn your back on all of this stuff and not expect me to notice. And what you leave, Jesus says, I will replace. And the gains that you realize will far exceed anything that you sacrificed for me. Jesus makes it brilliantly clear that though it is demanding joining his kingdom and, and following him, such demands are not to be seen as negative, but rather immensely positive. Yes, there is a cost to be reckoned with. After all, Jesus does say back here in Mark that the things that he blesses them with in return will come along with persecutions. But all that is sacrificed is as nothing when seen in the context of what is gained as a result. And notice that Jesus says that those rewards for following him are not only rewards that will be experienced in heaven, though that is certainly true, but they are rewards that will be experienced in the present as well. They're not only, they're not only in the hereafter, 
They're in the here. Jesus is telling his disciples that all who voluntarily lose in order to follow him will have greater joys and greater rewards that are not only laid up for him in heaven, but that such a person can even expect to experience those joys and those rewards even now. I was just having a conversation with a person the other day, just reiterated it in a conversation I had before this service began that I told person that when the Lord called me in the ministry to be a preacher and to call and to come follow him I ran from that as hard as I could I stand before you as a preacher who was drugged kicking and screaming into the role and the responsibility that I am currently in I say that not to brag I say it to my shame because I really ran from the Lord as hard as I could But when the Lord finally crushed my will and brought me to a place where I recognized that what he was calling me to do, I didn't have another option. But I either had, I had one of two options, to live a disobedient life far away from God or to live an obedient life and follow him. That was my only two options. When I I finally got to that place and I turned to follow the Lord, I was about 35 years old when it finally really hit me I did everything that you're not supposed to do. Those of you who've been financial advisors, you know what I'm about to say, and you know what you would never advise somebody to do this. I sold everything I had of value. I sold it all. I cashed in my 401k retirement. What little there was. I don't know how much there was, but I cashed it all in. Sold it. Paid every debt that I owed off, and I took my two-year-old daughter, Presley, and my wife, and we moved to Fort Worth, Texas for me to begin to get my master's degree at seminary. And I can just tell you, there were times when we were out there, when we lived, literally, I don't know if it was paycheck to paycheck. I don't know how many paycheck. We were just living to be able to try to make it through the month. And there was times we had no idea how we were going to make it through the month. But God provided, as he always has and as he always will. We never missed a meal. We stayed current on every single expense that we had. And in the process, we made lasting friendships that still are a blessing to us today. And I can only say to you that I have never, ever given up anything to follow Christ that he has not replaced with more than I could have ever imagined. The fact is, I continue, as I continue to run from the Lord, I can only imagine where I would end up today, what I would be doing, where I would be. I remember so distinctly the night that God finally came to me and crushed me. In my, in my defiance against his will, he, in the clearest voice that he could ever have communicated to me that was not audible but was nevertheless clear, he said, Craig, you ain't seen bad yet, but it's coming. I shudder to think where that would have been. Here's what I know. As a result of following Jesus, I have been given countless Countless opportunities to point others to follow him. Many lives have been changed as a result of that. And I can't begin to express to you how fulfilling and how rewarding it is to be one who gets to point others to Jesus. Furthermore, I can't begin to declare to you that even within this room right now, I have some of the dearest and best friends that I have ever had. And those relationships have come as a result of me following the Lord. 
I don't tell you any of that story in order to brag on me or point attention to me. Those of you who have known me best and know me best right now know I do not have one single solitary thing about which I can brag or boast. But I will boast in this. God has never failed me. Jesus, my Savior, who gave himself up for me, by dying on Calvary's cross, has not done anything but the absolute best for me by calling me to turn loose of everything else that I ever placed any value in in my life in order that I might follow him completely. And he has rewarded me far more than my actions have ever deserved. What I want you to know is that what he has done for me, he promises he will do for anyone who will take him at his word, turn loose of whatever it is in your life that you've been holding on to, and follow Jesus. That promise was not just for Peter. It wasn't just for those first disciples. It is for all who will turn loose and follow Christ. And then in the final verse of our text, and we'll come to a close, Jesus puts an exclamation on things. He says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. You know, based upon the context, I believe that what Jesus is saying here is that that those of us that we may judge, you know, to be first in this life, those who, like the rich young ruler, have all the stuff, folks who by human standards and measurements seem to always be on top, well, in God's kingdom, they will be last and receive nothing according to Jesus. All they fought for and pursued and protected and valued will perish with them in this life. And then the last will be first. Those who by earthly standards and measurements have nothing because they gave it up all for Christ, well, in God's kingdom, they will be first. They will receive everything, and a great reversal will take place. The first will be last, and the last will be first. These are God's words, they're not mine. These, are, these come from the mouth of Christ. They're not my words. This is how Jesus will adjudicate everything. And so in summation, in this passage, Jesus has warned us about riches. He has given us a word about redemption, and he's answered the question with regard to rewards. All of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Any sacrifices made to follow Christ will pale in comparison to the rewards of eternal life. You want to know what the rewards are for following Jesus? Eternal life. At least in this passage, we learn that is exactly where Jesus is pointing us. And any sacrifice you make in order to, to follow Jesus will pale in comparison to that reward. And what that means is that you and I have got to be careful not to place value on the wrong things. Rather, we must understand that our faith must be placed in the only one who can save us. And we should joyfully, joyfully give up all things to follow him because he is the only one who can give us the reward that will endure for eternity. You know, I've mentioned it a number of times over the past few weeks. I conclude once again this morning by reminding you of that famous quote by Jim Elliott, who was a missionary killed in 1956 while attempting to evangelize the, the Hurani people of Ecuador. And after his death, they recovered his personal journal and he had written these words that have come to be, become the words that he is most known for probably. 
He wrote these actually back in 1949, I believe. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Brothers and sisters, that is the lesson of the rich young ruler. It's what he didn't learn. It's what Jesus teaches us. My prayer is that these words of our Lord will penetrate your heart and that you will obey him by following him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace that they work in our lives to give us that which we do not deserve. Keep us from that which we do deserve. Because that's the case. Like this rich young ruler, we ought to come running to you, kneeling before you, confessing you as Lord. May it not be that we walk away sorrowfully from you because we have grasped our hands around things that are far less and have no eternal value. I have no doubt that you are calling men, women in this room, boys and girls, to turn loose of those things. Maybe, maybe there are some who have never done it for the first time. They, they sense and feel the call of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, but Lord, they're, they're afraid to actually do it. They wonder if they can truly trust you. My prayer is this morning is that you would convince them by the power of your Holy Spirit working through your word that you are worth every amount of investment, every short-term loss. May they trust in you to be their Lord and Savior. Perhaps there are others in this room who have become deceived over time. They've trusted in you, but they have allowed other things to claim their attention and and Father, to, to get a hold of them with regard to that which they value most. My prayer is, is that you would bring conviction into their lives as well. And that once more, they would remind themselves that you are the only one that they need to touch and to grab onto and to follow. So Lord, just have your will and way in the rest of this time, this morning, of our invitation. Allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us. And we pray that this would happen for your glory and for our good in Christ's name. Amen.